so good to be together. We're going to open up to Matthew chapter 9. I know you've been looking at this idea of knowing God, understanding who he is, and we're going to get a picture into who he is here in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read this. I want to put the scripture up on the screen. Verses 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Maybe you've heard that passage many times in the past before. We're going to take a look at it and get a window into who God is. There's two groups of people here in this passage. The first is tax collectors and the other is Pharisees, tax collectors and Pharisees. Let's take a little bit of a look at this. Matthew is a tax collector. Who is Matthew and why was he a tax collector? Tax collectors um, existed because the Roman Empire were growing, was growing so quickly, they actually didn't have the administration to keep up with how fast it was growing. So what they did is they hired local people like Isaiah. Come on. And so they'd have a big bidding war about who was going to be the tax collector. And so the Romans would say, we want five million currency from this area. Who wants to collect the taxes? And Isaiah and all his friends would be bidding for um, who would become the tax collector. They'd say, I can do 5.1. And then Isaiah would say, I can do 5.3. Whoa. Come on, big guns. I can do 5.4. And the Romans would say, right, Isaiah, you got it. You can be the tax collector for this region. The problem was, is that these people were Jews in a Jewish region who totally betrayed their own people, who totally betrayed their own God to partner up with the Romans. And every bit of money that they would raise, they'd hand over to the Romans to fulfill his 5.5 million pledge. And then you know what else he'd do? He'd line his pockets with however much more money he could find from the local people. Let's give a big boo, I mean a big thank you to Isaiah over here. These people were so independent, they were separate from society. Matthew was not just a jolly guy in the town, he was hated and despised for betraying his own people. I remember once in Winnipeg, Elise and I were looking for a place to live and we found this place online and it was the biggest apartment you've ever seen, it was the most beautiful apartment you've ever seen and it was for a really good price. And young Elise and I, we thought we'd ring this guy And he didn't pick up and then he called back and then he didn't pick up and he called back and he said, all you have to do is send us one month's rent times three through the mail 
to me. And then I'll give you the key. What does that sound like to you? Oh, that was the biggest scam you've ever seen. But you see, we were young and not quite as knowledgeable and we were sort of enticed by this beautiful place. Do you know what we did? We sent the money to the guy. And the key never showed up. Do you know what? We learned a lesson that day. Well, actually many, many lessons that day. Matthew was that kind of guy. He would scam people. He would pull people out. And he was in the village, the town of Capernaum on the shore of Galilee. And that's where other disciples were from, like Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John. And they would have been taxed by this guy. He was not liked. He was not loved. He was set aside. This guy in uh, Egypt, right around the time of Jesus, called Philo, wrote this about tax collectors. They, the Romans, deliberately choose as tax collectors men who are absolutely ruthless and savage and give them the means of satisfying their greed. These people who are mischief makers by nature gain added immunity because of their superior orders, obedient to an excessive degree in everything where their masters are concerned. Leave undone no cruelty of any kind and recognize no equity or gentleness. Get Check this out, Matthew. As they collect the taxes, they spread confusion and chaos everywhere. They exact money not only from people's property but also from their bodies by means of personal injuries, assault and completely unheard of forms of torture. Ooh. Let's take this guy off the page for a minute and not just read over this name Matthew and picture the kind of rebel bandit that this guy was. He was brutal. That was the tax collectors. The second group are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious group faithfully obeying the law. They were the leaders of the Jewish time, uh, along with other Jewish leaders like the Sadducees. They were very orthodox, all about uh, religious ruthlessness and following the law. And they hated and despised the tax collectors. They, They socially rejected the tax collectors. They politically saw them as traitors, no tax collector to take any form of public service or stand in a law court, and they were religiously excommunicated. They were kicked out of the synagogue. These were two people at either end of a massive spectrum. Tax collectors lost in self-indulgence, and Pharisees lost in self-righteousness. But the thing is, this spectrum actually has the same foundation under it. Both license and legalism have the same root at the bottom, which is this, a false view of God and a false view of alternatives to God. Do you know that this stems right back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are in the garden And the snake slithers in and he twists their view of God by asking two big questions. These are the two big questions through what he was saying to them. Is God good? And is God trustworthy? You know, with Elise and I moving to England, we sold our house, we sold our vehicles, we moved across there and looking to God for you know what it was he was wanting us to do and looking for his provision and there were moments of amazing provision where God showed up and 
gave us a vacuum cleaner when we didn't have one. And then there were moments where we were waiting and waiting and trying to find something. And you know what the question comes into our minds? After all this, is God really good? Is God going to fulfill what it is that we need? Is God going to satisfy me? And secondly, is God trustworthy? Can I really lean on him? Can he really be trusted? Is he, has he got integrity or not? And in the Garden of Eden, when they bought the, the lie that God wasn't good and he wasn't trustworthy, it resulted in an alternative. Let's pursue something else rather than God. And so what's your alternative? What's your alternative to God that you turn to when you think, oh, God isn't good? Maybe you're going through a situation right now, you just don't have the money. You don't have the means. You don't have the health. You don't have the circumstance, the family um, problem or interaction going wrong. And you just think, is God really good? All the time. God is good all the time. But don't we often live with this false view of God under the surface? And this was Matthew in chapter 9. He rejected God because he thought God isn't going to satisfy. Therefore, I'm going to go after money. Therefore, I'm going to betray everyone and go after something else that's going to satisfy. And the Pharisees were the same. They didn't know God. God was standing right in front of them and they didn't see him. They didn't believe that God was good. They didn't believe that ultimately God was generous. They may have prayed that out in all their prayers, but underneath the surface... They turned to an alternative, which was, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do this religion thing all on my own. I'm going to become good enough in front of God. And so, actually, even though these two people look so far apart, they're actually just the same in Jesus' eyes. God isn't good. God isn't enough. God isn't trustworthy. God isn't going to fulfill what he said to me. Those questions cloud and scatter around us all the time. And so in that place of total lostness from God in, in pursuing money and the Romans and, and, and letting go of Judaism and in that place of pursuing religion rather than pursuing Jesus, Jesus steps into the picture and shows them who God really is. I don't know what situation you're in today, but what we're about to get into now is the real good stuff. It's who God is really. Who is he? Today, Jesus can step into your world. He can step into your story. And like Matthew, he can turn it all around. So let's find out who God is. You know, there was a guy who, in about 500 BC, said, you know what, looking at the created order of the world, we can see that a creator exists, but there's no way that we can say who that God is or what he's like. He said it's a little bit like an architect of a house. You can be sitting in your house and you can see that it's been created, but you can't know who the guy was or what he likes or who his family is or what his name is. And so he said, religion is just a projection of our own thoughts about God. He was famous for saying, 
we created God in our own image. It's a very strong argument for agnosticism. Maybe you're an agnostic today. Maybe you're sitting on the back row and you think, come on, we can't know God. This is just religious stuff, what you're talking about. You can't make up who he is. And it's a very strong argument. But the thing that this guy didn't think of is what about if the architect came knocking on the door? What about if the creator stepped into creation? What about if God stepped into the world and showed himself and talked to people and, and, and made his character known and his values known and his priorities known? And that's what we get with Jesus. Jesus has stepped into the world and made God known to all people. Maybe you're struggling with the question, is God good? Maybe you're struggling with the question, is God enough? Will he truly satisfy? If you want to know God, let's look at Jesus. So here we go. There's four things that Jesus shows us about God in Matthew's story. And the first is, number one, God is good. God is good. Maybe you're struggling with that with that idea today that God is good, settle it today. God is good. He is. He is good. Jesus' mission statement was to come for the sinners of the world, not those who think that they're righteous. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is good. Come on. Have you ever heard of Bill Gates? Man, he's got a lot of money. Like a lot of money. Like billions and billions and billions. But you know what? I don't think he's ever given one cent to Apple. Why would he do that? Why would he give away anything for his arch rival? For his enemy? But think about Jesus. All the glory of heaven, all the richness of being God, and he gave it all away for you, who was an enemy of God. If you want to know, is God good? Look at the cross. God is good. He gave himself away every single bit, and this is what happened for Matthew. Think about it. Matthew rejected, put aside and and rejected from society. And this rabbi, Jesus Christ, walks up to his table and he talks to him. He calls him and then he goes to his house and eats with him in his house. It's community, all sitting there talking, interested. When was the last time Matthew had a conversation like this? He received mercy from Jesus. He was called by Jesus and he had community with Jesus. You know, Matthew gave away, left his money, and this is what he had instead. I bet he felt richer than he'd ever been in his entire life, sitting there at that table with Jesus. Matthew's alternative was money because he didn't think that God would satisfy. And then Jesus stepped into the picture and he saw God for who he really is. He's good. He's good. He's good. He's good. The second thing is that God is all satisfying. In verse 9, it says that he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. How did Matthew get up 
and leave all his money behind because living your life in relationship with Jesus is better than anything else you could pursue in your life. Jesus is better than any alternative that you could come up with. There's this song that I've been listening to recently by a guy called Pat Barrett and the song is called Better. Let me read you some of the words. All the money that the world could hold. Mountains made of solid gold. Riches that could buy my dreams. You are better than all these things. The prettiest face to turn their eyes. Beauty that could hypnotize. The open door that looks may bring. You are better than all these things. Your love is better than life. You are the well that won't run dry. I have tasted and I have seen. Or you are better than all these things. Every bit of searching in your heart and life is a signpost to Jesus Christ. And maybe your alternative for satisfaction is social media. Maybe it's to find as many likes as you can. Maybe it's to get that comment from that, you know, fashion blogger from Vancouver. And be like, oh my gosh, she, she commented on my post. I can't believe that. So you know what social media is? It's a workshop for broken cars to come and parked in. And look to get fixed from the broken car sitting next to you. Where Jesus the mechanic. Oh I like this one. Jesus the mechanic can step in. And he can actually fix you. He can actually satisfy your deepest desires. Jesus is better than you could ever imagine. And for Matthew, this was the moment he was satisfied in Jesus. Look at that table left behind, all that money sitting there. He just left it because Jesus is better. Is there something that you need to leave behind today? Is there an account you need to put on hold for a few months or a week? Don't look for satisfaction anywhere else. You can find it in Jesus. Number three, God is life-giving. In verse nine, it says, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. The word that Matthew used there to say he got up from his tax collector's booth was the word for resurrection. It's really cool. Every time that it talked about Jesus' resurrection in the book of Matthew, it used the same word as Matthew used for the moment when he got up. When Jesus stepped in his world and he saw him, he said, follow me, he had a resurrection moment. This was Matthew's rise up moment. And all of us need a resurrection moment. Maybe you're here today and you are a humanist, you're an atheist, you're not interested in God, you've just been dragged along by someone else. Just want to say welcome, it's so good that you're here today. Maybe your parents have brought you along and you're at that age, you're just like, 
Oh, I cannot wait till next year because then I can make my own decision about whether I stay or not. Listen, you need a resurrection moment. You need a fresh start. You need a new start. And you can find that in Jesus. This is the message of Christianity. There's a new start available. People say Christianity is a crutch. Have you ever heard that? Someone said that to me in York the other day. Our Christianity is just a crutch. Actually, it's way more than a crutch. It's a coffin. It's not a crutch. Christianity isn't a little help up that you strap on the side. Christianity is an invitation to come and die to your old life. And the good news, you get to get back up again in a new life, in a new moment, with a new prospect, with a new future ahead of you. Matthew wasn't just getting up and going after Jesus and trying to make his life better. He died in that moment to his old life and found a new moment in Jesus. And you know what? We've seen this in York. There's a guy in our church who two years ago, he was going through a big uh, breakup in his life after many years of marriage and he walked into another salt and light church in the northeast region of England. And during this wedding, the pastor there was sharing the gospel and his heart just got penetrated. He came forward at the end, he said, I need to know more about Jesus. He said, the only problem is I live in York. Do you know anyone in York? And he said, we weren't here at that point, okay? And he said, oh yeah, I know this guy, he's called Joe. Joe's on our, on our team in, in York now. And so they swapped numbers, they got in touch, and a couple of weeks later, there was this guy and Joe sitting in a pub in the middle of York. And 20 minutes into their conversation, there was this guy, Jesus, I give my life to you. Take it. I want a resurrection moment. Six months later, he was baptized in one of our other church plants. And now he's a part of our church and he's on a journey to growing and following Jesus. Everyone needs a resurrection moment. Do you? You need a fresh start and you're like, but the problem is I'm not like Matthew. I'm not on drugs. I'm not out there doing crazy stuff. No, you know what? The Pharisees need a resurrection moment. Maybe you've been in church your entire life and you're like, man, but I just know all the songs and I know what to do and I know what to look like to be a Christian. Guess what? You need a resurrection moment. The only difference between Matthew and the Pharisees, the Pharisees didn't turn the light on and say, look, this is who I really am. I need the mercy of God. Do you need the mercy of God today? Do you need the goodness of God? Do you need the life change? Do you need a fresh start? Just like this guy in York whose life is changing, things are changing in his life, the same was true of Matthew. Just like I love this picture that Matthew in chapter 9, he leaves having coins all in his hands. And a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 14, there's Jesus in this place with thousands of people and he's preaching to them and teaching them and they're all hungry and the disciples say, Jesus, what should we do? They, they all need food. And he says, you feed them. And they take the five laws and the two fish and Jesus prays for them, multiplies. And you know what he does? 
He says, Matthew, Matthew, come here. Here, take this in your hands. And the same hands that took coins from people now passed out bread to the poor and the needy. Jesus changes stuff in our lives. Maybe you're in a situation, you're like, I need to change. You're in the right place. You're like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm just pretending. It's okay, you're in the right place. You can see change happen in your life. You know, I love seeing when change begins to come. For Matthew, the biggest change happened was in his money, in his finances. And maybe for some of us, our alternative is money. Maybe it's not necessarily getting more money, but maybe for you it's spending more money. Doesn't spending kind of feel good? (laughs) I don't know if you're like me with Amazon account on your phone. Ooh, I could do one of those. I could do with a new ice cream scooper. (laughs) Yeah, come on, let's get it, come on. I could do with a new book. But what about those five sitting on the side that you haven't read yet? Yeah, well, I'm building a library. Come on, you know. (laughs) Come on, don't, don't we do this? We're like disasters with money. We just like, we spend to get the feeling, don't we? Do you know what? You need a change and Jesus can bring it. Look at Matthew's life. His financial moment changed. His alternative died and his Lord became the center of his life. Jesus, his life changing and life giving. Number four, God is at work in the world. God is good, he's all satisfying, he's life-giving, and he is at work in the world. Verse 12 says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you know Matthew didn't leave his table and join a hospital that he just went and got healed and and sorted it out and then got sent back to his table. No, he came and joined the barracks to get trained up and sent out into the world, into mission. In itself, the fact that Jesus came and knocked on the door of the world and said, hey, architect here, it's me, this is who I am, this is what I'm like. The fact that he left everything and went tells you that God is a missional God. He's at work. He wants to move. He wants to do stuff. And he wants to call people to join in with God's mission. God's not distant. He's not inactive. He's not separate. He's not boring. He's not um, religious. He's not old. He's not fallen asleep. He's more alive than you could ever imagine. He's more exciting than you could ever imagine. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like the Pharisee. And you're just like, on the surface, I'm doing all the stuff. 
where's the mission? Where's the passion? Where's the come on, let's go and reach the world and change the world? Let Jesus step into your life this morning and you will see amazing things happen. Elise and I had been in York for a few weeks and we stepped into the best takeaway restaurant in York. It's called Middle Feast. And it's so tasty. It's chicken and lamb shawarma and, oh man, the sauces. You wouldn't believe, man. It's so, sorry. Um... (laughs) It's really, it's really good food. And we're standing there ordering our food and there's this couple next to us and, and they're talking with the owner about Coptic church. And there's this moment where I think I could sort of get on, get on the mission of what Jesus is doing here or just leave it and sort of walk home. And I felt like Jesus said, come on, get in the conversation. And so I said, hey, you're talking about church. What are you talking about? And we kicked off into this conversation 15 minutes. Honestly, these people were the nicest people you've ever met. They were so radiant and warm and chatting and wanted to know you and all this stuff. And it was so nice. And we left the restaurant and we were walking away and we were like, why didn't we swap numbers? I said to Elise, should we go back and ask him for his number? And she was kind of like, it's kind of of awkward, you know. And I was like, I know, but come on, let's do it. So we turned around, we ran back to the shop. We went and I was like, hi guys, how are you doing? They're like eating their food. I'm like, hey, can I just stop you for a minute? Why don't we swap numbers? And they were like, yeah, that's a great idea. And we swapped numbers. And that Sunday was going to be our first Sunday in our house. And on Monday, there was supposed to be seven of us. And on Sunday, when we showed up in our house, there was 15 of us. This family showed up with their three kids and they've been with us ever since. They don't, they're exploring what faith means and discovering what Jesus means. And they're coming alive as they get to meet him and understand him and know him. Don't you know that God's on mission at the takeaway? Don't you know that God's on mission at the, water, at the water cooler in your office? Don't you know that God's on mission at Tim Horton's drive-thru? Don't you know that God's on mission at A&W? Goodness me, I love A&W. <laughs> and I've missed it so much for the last 12 months. <laughs> I did take a selfie in Toronto Airport in front of A&W like, yeah! It's really, really cool. God is, at mi- God is on mission and he's awake and alive. Do you know Matthew went from the tax collector's booth and he saw miracles. He heard the teaching of Jesus. He was present at the Last Supper. He was there on Resurrection Sunday and he saw the resurrected Jesus. He was there in Acts chapter 1 as one of the apostles and he was sent all over the world. And you know what's more? He became a gospel writer. He is one of the manuscripts of one of the uh, original texts that Matthew wrote. Look at this picture on the screen of one of the manuscripts. This was Matthew. He stopped writing down all the coins and all the money that he could get from people and he started writing about the message and the love of Jesus. And that message has gone all over the world for over 2,000 years. God's on mission. Think about that day in Acts chapter one. They're praying inside the building. When you pray, 
you end up outside the building. God was born to leave, sorry, the church was born to leave the building. The church was born to leave the building. You don't go to church. You are the church. You don't go to church when you're sitting on that seat that you choose every week. Unless you're slightly more bold and you like to, you know, shake things up a bit. You don't go to church. You are the church. Your disciples who've left everything to follow him and follow him in the world and in the workplace and your family. God is at mission and at work in the world. And his call to Matthew when he said, follow me, is open to you and it's open to me. Jesus says, follow me. You've been wrestling through, is God good? I mean, he's just not answering the prayer. Is God satisfying? Maybe money would do it. I need a new start. My life's a mess. Maybe you just think God's so boring. Man, the church just seems so bothered about the color of the walls and the, you know, like the color of our seats. And when Jesus is like, get outside the building. Get to the barbecue. Where's the barbecue? At that place. Go to that place. That's the church. It's not inside the building for an hour. Look at the person next to you and say, hey, guess what? You're the church. Hey, guess what? You're the church. You get to engage in the most incredible journey of your life. And this is good news for people who feel like, yeah, but it just seems like church is all about two hours. And when I'm at the office and I'm typing away or I'm working away or cranking the bolts away on the car, I don't feel like the church. This is good news for you. You are the church in that moment. The Holy Spirit is in you and God is with you and you can take the mission forward in that place. Jackie Pullinger, who went to China all those years ago, stepped on a boat with, what was it, Julie, a 10-pound note or a 20-pound note, and Jesus told her to go to China. You know what she says today after reaching thousands and thousands of people? She says, I don't have a ministry. I have a life, and I live it for Jesus. Take a step forward. Step outside the boat. You've got the soccer camp coming up in West St. Paul. Go and sign up, go and get involved, get outside the building and go and take the mission forward. So I wonder if we can just land in this place. We've tried to look at the life of Matthew, take it off the page and see that this guy was an absolute rebel disaster. And the Pharisees were an absolute self-righteous veneer of religion, they both had the same problem. They didn't know God. And Jesus steps into our world and into our life and he says, this is who God really is. He's good. He's all satisfying. He's life-giving. And he's at, he's, on, he's at work in the world. I thought we could sing a song to finish. But as we do this, this is actually a moment 
where you can actually engage and encounter God and settle some things. Maybe you're wrestling through, is God really good? Come and settle it today. You know, we get really good at this, don't we? We get really good at coming to church and love singing and we say the message and we ask, yeah, amen, then we walk and we come back the next week and we, we, it's, we're good at it, aren't we? But you know what? Jesus wants to meet us in this moment. He wants to do something in our lives.